you got your Bibles this morning, if you will, find Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. We're going to stand as we read the Word of God together this morning. I'll read a few verses, the first four verses to kind of get us started. We'll look at all of chapter 1 this morning. Starting a new series, The Ultimate Fixer-Upper. Something that's bigger than HGTV can tell us about, right? The Ultimate Fixer-Upper. A study of Ezra and Nehemiah that I've been looking forward to. The way we'll spend our summer in God's Word together. Ezra chapter 1 begins in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. The word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The Lord put it into the mind of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Whoever is among his people, may his God be with him. And may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord. Now, in Nehemiah, we'll see that the focus shifts to the walls. But at the beginning, the starting point was the house of the Lord, more specifically the altar. And he says, uh, verse 4, Let every survivor, wherever he lives, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. Father, we thank you that your hand of redemption and restoration is seen from Genesis to Revelation, that you've always been a God bringing your people back to yourself. We thank you for the story preserved for us that we might learn from their lessons in Ezra, Nehemiah, of a God who does redeem and restore and rebuild. Lord, I pray that we would learn something about their passion and their hunger for an encounter with God and a right relationship with God. Help us to understand what that means for us today in the 21st century. We we, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Some of you might remember back in the 90s, uh, the town of Waco, Texas became quite popular, um, not just because of uh, uh, the, the good things that might have been happening in that town, but because of a man by the name of David Koresh. Remember that? Remember the story there and uh, all that took place? Remember the uh, Branch Davidian compound and all the controversy when Janet Reno and, and the, uh, the, the federal lost their lives, and it became, uh, of course, a tragic ending as many, many people lost their lives. And so for a number of years, whenever you heard Waco, you didn't necessarily think of Baylor University, you you thought of David Koresh and Branch Davidian Compound and, and destruction and death, both theologically, spiritually, and physical death. Uh, In recent days, however, it's not the tearing down or destruction that comes to mind, but a couple that's been probably controversial to some because of their their stand for their faith, but a popular TV show called Fixer Upper. How many of you are fans of Fixer Upper? All right, a lot of you. I'm not, because my wife watches this show, 
And she says, why can't you do that? I can't do that. I, I watch what Chip and Joanna Gaines do, and I say, wow, that's awesome. I can't do that. A lot of you men and some of you ladies can do that kind of stuff. Not me. It's just I, I did not inherit those genes. That's not a gift of mine. But I am grateful today to know that there is an ultimate fixer-upper. There is one who can restore us spiritually. There is one who can rebuild a life. There is one who can rebuild a family. If you feel like sometimes when it comes to your life and your family, we will never get it all together. Some of you look at the biblical models in Scripture, and when you look at it, it's like me watching Fixer Upper with my wife. You're like, man, I can't do that. I can't put this together. I can't build that. I don't have those skills. And all God is asking is for you to give Him permission as the ultimate fixer-upper. You submit to what He wants to do in this rebuilding process. Think about what He's done in the life of Israel to this point. From the moment He called Abraham to step out in faith and with a family to begin a nation until through Isaac and Jacob and ultimately Joseph, they find themselves in bondage in Egypt, but God sends Moses to lead them out of that, the exodus, to lead them out of that slavery, to re lead them out of that bondage in Egypt. After the return, after when you read in, in Joshua and the conquest of the promised land and being reestablished as a nation, you get into the judges in that cycle, it seems like they're they're walking with God, and then they turn their back on God. They get caught up into the sins of the land and the idolatry around them. And so God has to allow oppression to come in to kind of shake them up and to get their attention. And in the midst of that oppression, they cry out for a deliverer, and God raises up a judge who comes and delivers. So we read about people like Gideon and Samson and Deborah who were imperfect, but God used them to bring about a rescue. And then the people begin to cry out for a king. And then we have you know, a beginning with King Saul that didn't go so great. And then King David, of course, who became the most famous, uh, even to this day, most beloved king before there was a divided kingdom. But, uh, but eventually there was, after three kings, when there was one nation, there would become a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and they would all slip back into those same things that they did when they didn't have a king, when judges would have to deliver them. They would be caught up into the sins of the land, uh, the, the pagan beliefs, the idolatry, involved in all kinds of things to where God would say through the prophets again and again and again, you have played the harlot, you have committed spiritual adultery. And you're going to suffer the consequences of this. And so we have prophesied the what became the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in about 722 B.C. And then the conquest and destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah, which was uh, really, you have about three deportations, but leading up to 587, 586 B.C., the destruction of Jerusalem. And it looks like the nation is no more. Now, one thing we ought to have learned if we've read the Old Testament is that God is a covenant God and he was not, and I believe even to this day, is not finished with the people of Israel. And, and so he has a, a de designed purpose 
that was in place and he was going to be faithful to that covenant no matter what he had to use to get their attention. And so it's in the midst of these returns from Babylonian exile back to Jerusalem. These, that there would be ultimately three major deportations from Judah. There would be three major returns. The first under, the, under Zerubbabel. We'll read about those in the first six chapters of Ezra. The rest of Ezra, we'll kind of talk about Ezra himself. Ezra wrote the first six chapters with the records that he would have been given. A lot of that was happening before he even came on the scene. And then later we see Nehemiah's return with a broken heart to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So Ezra will focus on rebuilding the temple, restoring walls, worship of Yahweh. And then Nehemiah will focus on rebuilding the walls and ultimately rebuilding the reputation. And so you have kind of a religious figure in Ezra, you have a, a, a statesman in Nehemiah, all working together for the glory of God. And so to get us started with chapter 1 this morning, we want to ask this question, can we dream again? Think again about all that they had gone through and the hopelessness that Israel and Judah had experienced, and possibly thinking, well, Israel as a nation, as we once knew it, is no more. You might think the same thing sometimes when it comes to your spiritual journey. I remember a time in my life where I was closer to the Lord Jesus Christ than I am today, when I was more passionate for the things of God, when I was more in love with Christ. I remember a time in my life where my family, we, we loved the things of God, and now I'm trying to turn their hearts and their attention toward God, and I just don't know that we'll all get it back together as a family. Sometimes it's a church that's in need of revival, and we're saying, Lord, do something new, do something exciting, do something fresh as a church. I've been pastor, I was talking uh, with someone this morning about having been pastor here for 17 years, and I believe that our best days are still ahead of us and that God wants to do something new, something exciting, something fresh, something that causes us to step out on faith and take a risk for his glory. How do we do that? Can we dream? Well, if we dream according to God's word, absolutely. First, we need to dream of building according to the plans of God. When it comes to putting your life, your family, the mission of the church, the strategies of our ministries. We dream of building according to the plans of God. Look at verse 1 and see that this is what God had purposed all along. The year, first year of, of Cyrus the king of Persia. The word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. What God said would happen that, that, that scarlet thread of redemption, as W.A. Crystal used to refer to it, that scarlet thread of redemption seen in the Word of God emerges here that, listen, God had this plan all along according to His Word, according to the words. He specifically names Jeremiah, so let's kind of let our fingers do the walk in a little bit. We're going to turn to Jeremiah. Hold your place there in Ezra chapter 1. In Jeremiah, we'll start with verse, uh, chapter 25. Jeremiah 25, and I want you to find verses 11 and 12 in Jeremiah chapter 25. Now remember, this is written long before the days of Ezra, 
and the return from the Babylonian exile. It says, this whole land will become a desolate ruin. These nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration, the land of the Chaldeans, for their guilt, and I will make it a ruin forever. And so God's promise, something's going to get moving again in Babylon in 70 years. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, go down to verse 10. For this is what the Lord says. That's again, that when you see the Lord all caps, that's the covenant name, Yahweh. He says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know... This is a verse we all memorize, but we often don't consider the context of brokenhearted people that know that they're about to to suffer from a a moment of ruin that God had promised this this devastation is going to come upon your land and you're going to be taken captivity. And he says, when all these things happen and when you undergo this destruction, when you undergo this deportation, when you're in the midst of this captivity, don't forget I know the plans that I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration, plans for your welfare and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. For you will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. This time of desperation is going to cause you to once again, when you've hit rock bottom, turn your heart toward me. It says, I will be found by you, the Lord's declaration. I will restore your fortunes and I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, the Lord's declaration. Thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, I will restore you to the place I deported you from. It says, I'm going to bring you back. And so you have this promise of redemption. You have this promise of of restoration that yes even the most difficult season you go through I'm going to bring you back and I don't know where you might be spiritually today but I know that our God is able to bring you back I don't know where your family is God is able to restore and rebuild he is the ultimate fixer-upper as he did with Israel he will do with us now it's according to the plans and the purposes of God A lot of times when we talk about a a dream, when we talk about a vision, when we talk about God doing something great in our lives, we'll quote quote Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Yeah, where there is no vision, the people perish. That is not saying, listen, sit around and daydream of what you would really like to see happen. And when you daydream about what you would really like to see happen, just kind of name it and claim it, and God will do it. The word vision can also be translated revelation. See, the vision has to be from God, not something you create in the imagination and the inclinations of your own heart, which can be desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, according to Jeremiah. It's when you say, God, I need the illumination of your word. 
I need to see what you have called me to do, what you've called me to be about, and so your vision becomes an application of biblical truth. And so you can't say, I need a vision from God, I need a dream from God, and neglect this book and the principles and precepts that guide your personal spiritual journey, the principles and precepts that tell you what a Christian family is all about, beginning at marriage like we saw last night and continuing through uh, bringing up children like you saw before you. When you begin to say, what is God's purpose in all this? What is God's plan in all of this? How has it been revealed? What do the scriptures tell me about all of this? Then the application of those principles gives us a vision. We begin to see what God is doing and wants to do in our lives. Daniel in chapter 9 and verse 2, he understood from Jeremiah's prophecies that there was going to be this 70 years of exile, but then God was going to bring his people back. He would start restoring that what was known as the southern kingdom there, but he would bring Israel together as a whole once again. Isaiah 44, verses 24, chapter 45 through verse 4, you see something that will just absolutely blow your mind. So if you just kind of, you were in Jeremiah, you're going to turn back to Isaiah, and I want you to read this prophecy, again, written before Cyrus, who made this decree, was even born. And when you consider when Isaiah wrote, this is just mind-blowing. This was written some 150 years before King Cyrus would come on the scene. So you, you found your place, Isaiah chapter 44, look at verse 24. This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb says, I am the Lord who made everything, who stretched out the heavens by myself, who alone spread out the earth, who destroys the omens of the false prophets, who makes fools of diviners, who confounds the wise and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the message of the servant, of his servant, and who fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, she will be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah, they will be rebuilt. Who says to the depths of the sea, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, again, 150 years before Cyrus comes on the scene. My shepherd, not of my people originally, but somebody I'm going to use, my shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasure and say to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt and to the temple, its foundations will be laid. The Lord says to Cyrus, chapter 45, his anointed, God had set Cyrus aside for this plan, for this purpose, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him to unloose the loins of the kings, to open the doors before him, and the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and level the uneven places. I will shatter the bronze doors and cut the iron bars in two. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches from secret places so that you may know that I, the Lord, the God of Israel, call you by your name. He's even said it's going to be a leader named Cyrus that gets all this kicked off. I call you by your name, verse 4, because of Jacob my servant and Israel my chosen one. I give, you a, I give a name to you 
though you do not know me. Now perhaps and likely God used Daniel to say, Cyrus, (laughs) God's already called you by name. And he says this is what he's doing. And God used this decree of Cyrus to fulfill his plans and his purposes getting this return started, this rebuilding process. So God gives us a blueprint in his word. You see within the, in, in, in verse 5 in this, you know, listen, Cyrus, go back, to actually look at verse 2. The king Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. In other words, I see where I fit into God's plans in all of this, and I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to do what God has created me and called me by name to do. Whoever's among his people, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem and Judah. So he begins to, to, to liberate this process and say, let's let, let's let them get after it. And he gives them the resources. We'll come back to that in verse 4. In verse 5 it says, So the family leaders of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and the Levites, everyone God had motivated, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house at Jerusalem within the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Even among Levitical priests, there, there, there were family leaders who had to take the lead in this process according to God's plan. So so we have a blueprint. We have a biblical mandate. What does all of that look like? We're not in Old Testament times, right? We're not Old Testament Israel today. We've been engrafted into the vine, but it's a new day. What does that look like? What is the New Testament blueprint? Acts 1.8 says, You shall be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. So for one thing, we know God's revealed blueprint, God's plan is for us to be His witnesses making him known in this world. So if you want to be one who dreams and gets a vision that God's all about fulfilling, then dream according to that call on your life. What is the blueprint he has laid before you? 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. So he begins to say, listen, that you become more like Jesus, look at who Jesus is, what he has done, look at his character, look at what he was about, your sanctification, the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of you and make you more like Jesus, that's a dream that he is about blessing and enabling and empowering. Again, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go into all nations and make disciples. So helping other people come to know and love and serve Jesus is something that you need to get a vision for how God wants to use you, how God wants to use your family, for how God wants to use this church. When you begin to have a vision that applies these biblical principles of, okay, if we're doing what God called us to do, what does it look like? What does my life look like? What does my day look like? What does my calendar look like? What does my checkbook look like? What does the church look like? What, what will it look like five years from now and ten years from now when it is the application of Scripture, then you're dreaming of building according to the plans of God. What is God's standard for my marriage? Listen, when it comes to rebuilding, when I do marriage counseling, and, and please, If you're saying, man, we're struggling with marriage, family, parenting, whatever it is. I don't have all the answers, but I know who the architect is. I know who has the blueprints for it. And we can begin to pray and work together. But when I meet with couples and sometimes ask this question, 
Are you serious about saving this marriage? Or you just want to say you tried so you, say you came to see the preacher? And then I'll ask a question like this. If God shows you his standard for your marriage, will you obey God no matter what it costs? Are you committed to honor the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what it costs? And if they say, listen, if you help us to understand in the Word of God what will bring God glory, we're committed to do that, then there is no relationship beyond reconciliation. God can rebuild anything when we come to a place in our life where we say we are committed to God's blueprint no matter what it costs. We need as a church, we need as families, and we need as individuals to get a vision for what that blueprint looks like when we're applying biblical principles in our lives. We get away from this book, we get away from God's word, then we'll miss out on what God would have in store for us. So we dream of building according to the plans and purposes of God. Secondly, I want you to see that there was a dream of building alongside the people of God. A dream of building alongside the people of God. They, they worked together as a people. Daniel had prophesied this end of, of a Babylonian empire, the beginning of a, a Medo-Persian empire. Remember this image of the beast uh, kind of laid all of that out, and the Persian empire would give way to the, uh, the Greek empire, and, and Alexander the Great was pictured there in Daniel's prophecies, and coming on the scene so rapidly, and then ultimately the Roman Empire that would be in place when Christ would come into the world. Daniel prophesied all of that. Now what was interesting about this, after the Babylonian Empire, in the end of that empire was the Persian Empire was now in place. And again, what was interesting about the Persian Empire, of all of those empires, the Persian Empire, was more concerned that people not lose their national identities. They actually had sympathy and compassion for various people groups to be able to hold on to their national identity. So God and his sovereign plan had set the stage for this return under Cyrus and under his decree back to Jerusalem. We're still reading about the first return, but we see in verse 3 refers to God's people. Verse 5, the, these family leaders that I mentioned a moment ago. Chapter 2 begins to list all of the names, all of these families, and it's kind of summarized. If you'll flip over to chapter 2, verses 61 through 65. From the descendants of the priests, the descendants of Habiah, the descendants, and you can pronounce all these names and, and correct me later, but uh, Hakaz, the descendants of Brasilla, the they had all taken the, the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. They begin to search. See, I'm in chapter 2 still, right? These searched for their entries, genealogical records, but they could not be found. There were certain issues about being in priestly leadership that the records had to be accurate, so they were disqualified, it said, from the priesthood, at least until they could confirm some things. The governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urim and the Thummim. You know the story about it was a little bit like the, the casting of lots, but it, it, reading the stones there. And then it says the whole combined assembly numbered about 42,360. One of the wonderful things that proves the authenticity of Scripture is I give you some firm, hard numbers there. Not including their 7,337 male and female slaves. 
and their 200 male and female seniors. And they had 736 horses. He goes on to talk about the other resources that were with them. But, but in all, about 50,000 of God's people involved in this first return. About 50,000 people. That's a lot of people. Now, it wasn't scratching the surface of what God had in mind in the whole restoration. But to start the process, about 50,000 people are headed back. Now, what if I said... I'm going to take us on a mission trip, and all of a sudden we had 50,000 people volunteer to go. Well, that's about 20,000 more than what we have in Madison County. But that would be an exciting mission trip. And so they have about 50,000 people ready to roll up their sleeves and get back at it and getting the temple established there. There's something about when people come together like this that, that build, there's a word that we use called camaraderie. Camaraderie is what makes you want to be a part of a team. It's what made uh, football so much fun, even though I wasn't that good at it. But I wanted to be a part of it because of the, the camaraderie when I was in high school. Because you go to battle together. And, and that's what a family should be. It should be through thick and thin we go to battle together. That's what a church should be. Through thick and thin we go through battle together. And God is calling us to get up and he's calling us to move. He's calling us to do something. And we want to have this this teamwork, this effort as we work towards something together. And then when you add not only the te team chemistry that we call camaraderie, but you add the Holy Spirit's anointing on something, then it becomes a powerful thing. So 50,000 people, all of these families coming together saying, God's doing a new thing, just like Isaiah had promised. You can go back and read Isaiah chapter 42 where he says, Behold, I'm going to do a new thing. This new thing is happening. And I think God says it sometimes personal individuals in the church where he says, listen, I'm getting ready to do a new thing in your life. He says it to families, I'm getting ready to do a new thing. He says it to a church. He says it to Trinity, I think. I'm getting ready to do a new thing. Will you not know it? Will you not get in on it? Well, these were the earliest ones willing to get in on a new thing. They were saying, I'm all in. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to sweat. I'm ready to reach out. Ready to pray. Ready to seek the Lord. Ready to see the kingdom of God advance. Is that where you're at this morning? Is that where you're leading your family to be this morning? Finally, I want us to close with this thought. I want us to dream of building, accessing the provisions of God. At the moment, we say, well, I, I can't do that. Uh, we've tried. I've tried. I can't live the Christian life. I can't do anything great for God. Too many people have told me that I'm worthless anyway. I... My family, you just, Pastor Robbie, you just don't know what we're up against. You, you don't know the people I live with. You don't know the people I work with. You don't know the... We're a rural church in Madison County, Georgia. What, what great things is God going to do with this? God wants to use this church to touch the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's doing that as we continue to step out on faith. And what we see here is you don't have the provisions necessary, but God does. Where God guides, God provides. Don't let that just be a cliche this morning. Believe it. Where God guides, God provides. Now, you were in Jeremiah 25 and, and, and chapter 25, chapter 29 a moment ago. And flip back to chapter 27. That's what Jeremiah prophesied. Jeremiah chapter 27 Verse 21 and 22. Yes, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says about the articles that remain in the temple of the Lord and the palace of the king of Judah 
and in Jerusalem, they will be brought to Babylon and will remain there until I attend to them again. This is the Lord's declaration. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. God says, listen, er everything you need to make this happen that you haven't appreciated, when you get to the place you appreciate it again, I'm going to give you back everything that you need to encounter me once again. And so when we come back to Ezra chapter 1, verse 6, all their neighbors supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, valuables, in addition to all that was given as a freewill offering, King Cyrus also brought out what? The articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had placed in the house of his God. Now, you can turn on the ultimate fixer-upper this week, and you'll say to yourself, how can Joanna Gaines be so resourceful? Where does she find all this stuff? Well, if I had a building like hers out back with all that stuff she stocked up, then I would be in great shape. Well, I wouldn't because I wouldn't know what to do with it. But you would be in great shape. When it comes to our spiritual journey and what God's calling us to do, I, I can't do that. I can't afford that. I can't go there. I, I, I don't have the power. I don't have the faith. Listen. We've got to get our focus off our abilities and our resources and get our focus on a God who is infinite and almighty and all-powerful, who hasn't lost anything, who says, I have everything at my disposal and I'm ready to give it to the individual, to the family, to the church that's ready to walk with me and serve me. God wants us to aggressively be a part of what he's doing. He doesn't force it upon us. But he provides us with everything we need when we join him at work. This was the inventory. This is verse 9, by the way, in chapter 1. 30 gold basins, 1,000 silver basins, 29 silver knives. Fellas, that sounds pretty cool, does it not? 29 silver knives, 30 gold bowls, 410 various silver bowls, and 1,000 other articles. Now listen, these knives and bowls were things involved in sacrificial worship to remind them that there would come a Messiah one day. Something to bring them into the very presence of God. Has God ever called you to do something and you felt like, but I just don't have the resources? I, has God ever called us as a church to do something and we just kind of say, well, I don't know if we can do that. Sometimes God does that at a time where he says, in my life personally, all right, it's time to put up or shut up. There's some people I was praying with about how, how God had been opening doors. I said, you know, as I look at kind of this, trans, I'm, I'm approaching those empty nest years, and I look at this transition season of life, I believe God's called me to continue as a, as a pastor at Trinity, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not coaching Little League and things like that. I believe God's called me to encourage other pastors in, in, in maybe in more remote and in, in rural places and in, in overseas, people that, that, that are out there, and they may not have the opportunities for education and, and instruction and things like we had the opportunity, or that God gave me the opportunity to experience. And I want, I want to use every opportunity I can to encourage and, and, and bring, see young ministers come up and, and serve the Lord. I want to be an encouragement. And, and after sharing with several people that pray for me about how God had been opening doors for that to happen, I'm like, hey, as God opens doors, I want to walk through them. Having this conversation a couple weeks ago, Feeney Matthews, who was preaching here last month, and, and by the way, challenges me to dream bigger than anybody I've ever been around. 
He contacts me from Israel. Remember he said he had the scholarship given to him to go to Israel? He contacts, so I know it's got to be fairly important if he's getting in touch with me while he's in Israel. And he says, Pastor Robbie, he says, listen, uh, I had a speaker who canceled on our trip to Peru. And we're doing in Peru what we were doing in India, and we're training the, the local pastors there to go out and how to do expository preaching and how to to, to do some of the things. He said, hey, by the way, what you taught in India, I believe you're supposed to come with me to Peru and teach these pastors those same principles. <laughs> I'm like, hey, you know, first thing I did is I, I tell my wife, because usually it's kind of like, she's not going to have a piece about this, I better not go. And I said, Feeney wants me to come to Peru. I've got one month. I mean, I've got like a couple of days to make the decision. He wants me to come to Peru what do you think? She said, well, Kent's at home for the summer. I don't care. Go. I'm like, okay. Well, I'm like calling Greg and our missions committee and saying, hey, I'm maybe going to Peru next month. Um, but when you're walking with the Lord and God's beginning to give you a word, he's giving you a vision, and then all of a sudden an opportunity opens up like that, how can you tell the Lord no? How can you say, God, you know, I just don't trust you for it. I don't, I don't trust you to be there. I know the scripture tells us to count the cost. But, but the biblical mandate to count the cost does not mean the same thing as don't take any risk in life. In human terms, that's not what it's saying. It's really saying quite the opposite. It says know the risk and serve the Lord, trusting him. Know that if God calls you, he provides for you. See, there may be, we've got two or three spots open for this South Florida mission trip. Somebody here this morning needs to see me or Pastor Ben after church today and say, hey, I'm ready to go because God's going to provide, God's going to take care of you, and you know you need that life-changing experience with our students. Some of you, the provision is not materially, it's the energy to work with Awanas another year where he guides he provides. For some of you, it's the words to witness to that neighbor, that co-worker, that classmate, because you're like, if I try to take a stand for Christ, I won't know what to say. Where he guides, he provides. We're in a rural church in northeast Georgia that wants to change the world. Where he guides, he provides. Just like for the people of Israel, just like for those in bondage, our God is a rebuilding, redeeming God who wants us to get a vision for what he has in store. He wants us to walk in faith and obedience and get in on it. And we're going to just really launch into this study next, next week's Father's Day and chapter 3 parallels so much that God's calling dads to do. So I can't wait to get into chapter 3. But today, can we begin to dream again? Some of you haven't dreamed for a long time. Some of you got to a place of complacency in life where you're kind of satisfied. Ask God to give you a new dream. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for the testimony and the truthfulness of your word. We thank you that it is your revelation of yourself and your purposes and your plans. And just like for those 50,000 who got up and began to return to rebuild the temple and the altar, to restore a city, Lord, you've called us to learn from their example and to be about the kingdom of God. 
to step out on faith and to do what you've called us to do. Lord, sometimes that means adoption and or being a foster parent. But where you guide, you provide. Sometimes it means a short-term mission trip or a walk to the neighbor's house. Where you guide, you always provide. Sometimes it's that a church needs to step out on faith, do something radical in the world's eyes. Where you guide, you always provide. Lord, hindsight's 2020. As we look back and see your hand of provision, we see your hand of bringing about visions that once existed even and where our church is today. Lord, give us courage and faith to dream again, to dream for our own journey with you, to dream for our families, to dream for the the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.